It took a lamb 2,000 years ago that God sent his son to die on a cross so that we could have life. But the, the beauty of the story is it doesn't stop on Friday, that it really started on Sunday when he rose. You know, what a story. Imagine telling someone that story. Hey, sit down. That had nothing, no clue. I want to tell you a story about a guy that came to earth from heaven. He died. But then the cool part is, is he rose again. It's a hard story to believe. Why do we believe this story? Do we believe it just because it's in a book that we call the Bible? Do, do we believe it because a long time ago in a church service or in a Sunday school class or wherever it was the first time that you encountered the, the story of Easter that you went, oh, I, man, that must, be, that must be true. I believe what that person's saying. Why do we believe for 2,000 years has this story been handed down? Why do we believe this story? And, and a lot of people say that it's just a made-up fairy tale. That it's just a story that's, that's just supposed to be like, yeah, it's a cool story, and you're supposed to read it and go, wow, that's, that's interesting. The same way you would read Jack and the Beanstalk or, or Homer's Iliad or the Odyssey, like anything that's been written. It's just good literature. But why do we believe this story? A lot of people tell us, oh, well, the story was made up because they wanted to start a religion. These disciples of Jesus, they just wanted to be famous, so they made up this story, concocted this story and wrote about it in the Gospels so that they could be famous and that they could start this worldwide religion. Well, if that's true, if you're going to write a good work of, uh, of, of fiction and you're going to start a religion and you're going to write a story to start a religion from, there's a couple of things that you don't want to do. You don't want to write yourself to look like an idiot, would you? Now, if you were writing the story about yourself and, and you wanted to be the hero of the story and you wanted to start this new religion and you wanted this to go across the globe, you probably would make yourself center point in the story. You'd be like, man, we were right there. I was anticipating. I was ready for this to happen. We knew what was coming. We were just waiting for God to, to open the doors and to show the right way. And you would, you would create this elaborate story of your involvement. But instead, in the, in the Gospels, what we actually see is the exact opposite of that. The disciples who wrote the Gospels, they paint themselves in the story to be the biggest group of dummies that have ever walked the face of the earth. They are the guys who could not see what was right in front of them. Why would you write a story about yourself that wasn't true to paint yourself in this light? Wouldn't you want to make yourself look a little bit better? But what we see is these guys who had, who had literally abandoned their lives. The Gospels tell us early on when Jesus called them to be their disciples that, that they actually left everything. They just stopped whatever they were doing, whether they were at work, whether they were with their family, like whatever they were doing, they stopped it and they went and they followed Jesus. They left it behind. So imagine, you know, you're at work, 
you're doing your thing, and this, this random guy that you've never met in your entire life comes up and is like, hey, I got a plan for you. I want you to follow me, and I'm going to teach you all the things that there are to know about God. And you're like, sweet, I'm out of here. And you just start following for three years. Like, people would say you need to be locked up. Right? Your family would put out a search party and they would probably commit you to a hospital. And they would give you some drugs to take to calm your anxiety. But that's what these guys did. They were willing to lay down everything and follow Jesus. But all of a sudden, when Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Bible tells us that the disciples are gone. They flee. They're out of here. They want nothing to do with this. Matthew Chapter number 26, beginning in verse 55 this morning, says this. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all, see that, all the disciples left him and fled. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyards of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. So these same guys that just hours earlier are in the upper room with Jesus having the Passover meal. And they're all telling Jesus about how awesome he is and how they're never going to leave him. And, and they're arguing over which one loves him the most and who's going to be the greatest in his kingdom. And then just a couple of hours later, poof, they all disappear. They all run and hide. And then we have Peter's denial of Jesus. And his denial is so blatant that he curses out the people who pointed him out. And he goes so far as not just to say, like, I'm not a disciple of Jesus. He goes so far as to say, I don't even know who he is. I've never even heard of him. Who is this guy you're talking about? What do you mean? No, I'm not associated with him. The Gospels tell us that as Jesus was led to the cross and at the crucifixion, in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they only mention Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary Magdalene. In Matthew, in the book of Matthew, he, he mentions, quote, other women who followed Jesus that were present at the cross. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 55, it says, There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. You see, in the culture of the day, in first century Palestine, having nothing but women present with Jesus at this time, it does two things. Number one, it diminishes the disciples' belief in who Jesus was. The second thing that it does is it diminishes Jesus' significance. Now, the Gospel of John does record that he was present at the cross. Now, you can take that with a grain of salt. John is also uh, writes in his gospel that he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. Um, so you can take how you want to take John. John seems to have a really good opinion of himself. I've always thought that was funny, that John never referred to himself as John in his book. He just referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Really, John? I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. But John does record that he was there. 
But John does in his gospel, if you read it, he gives more significance to the women being there than himself. So the only people that are there in Jesus' hour of need, as he's being crucified, as he's giving up his life for the sins of all mankind, is a group of women. Now, ladies, you can pat yourselves on the back to say that y'all were there. Y'all are always there, right? All right? But in first century uh, Palestine, that meant nothing. That shit, don't get mad at me. I didn't make up the rules. That's just history. So the men abandoned Jesus in his hour of need. In Matthew 27, verse 57, it says, When it was evening, after Jesus had died, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Jesus, or named Joseph, excuse me, who was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered that it be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own tomb, which he had cut out in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb, and he went away. Now, this is interesting. Enter this character, Joseph of Arimathea, whom prior to this in the Gospels, we've never heard of. He's not mentioned. We don't know who he is. The only thing that we know is that he's from Arimathea and that he's got a lot of money. And we know that he didn't just ask Pilate. Matthew's really um, nice here. He basically bribed Pilate with money to receive the body of Jesus so that he could give Jesus a proper burial. And you go, now what's so special about that? Well, you have to understand that in the Roman world, when you were executed as a criminal of the state, you didn't get a burial. Okay, they didn't wait and the guys were like, oh, they all died on the cross and then somebody goes and they take the body and the family's waiting and they go, here's your loved one. You know, we're sorry that he's dead. You know, my condolences. That didn't happen. They left the bodies on the cross until either the animals and the birds had devoured them or until there was basically nothing left and they could come by and they could basically scrape off what was left. And then they would take the remains of what had been scraped out the cross and they would put it into a wagon and they would roll it out to the city dump and they would leave the bones and the remains in the city dump for the, for the dogs and the, and the wild animals to come and, and finish off. Now, in Jewish culture, burial and how you were buried, where you were buried and how your body is prepared is one of the most important things in their culture. And so for Jesus to be crucified as a criminal of the state, his body would have been left there. And he would have suffered the same fate. Except Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate and basically barters and bribes him with enough money to get Jesus' body. And then he lays him in his own tomb. You see, none of the disciples who were devout followers of Jesus, who were also devout Jews knowing what that would mean in their culture for his body, none of them attempted to make sure that Jesus' body was secured, that he received a burial. No, we see nothing, and we hear nothing from the 11 disciples that are left, except that they're hiding. Nowhere to be found in this part of the story. And we had this wealthy, no-name follower who we have to assume is just some sort of a fringe follower. He was probably a Pharisee, one of the Pharisees who 
actually thought there might be something to Jesus, but he had to be, he had to be a follower in secret for lack of losing his status. And in Matthew 27, verse 61, we see Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, Jesus' mother, were sitting there opposite the tomb. So as Joseph, this man that we don't know who he is, lays Jesus' body in the tomb, we see Mary Magdalene and Jesus' mother there in the distance watching to see where they laid him, to see how his body was prepared so they would know what they needed to do to make sure that Jesus' body was right. Where are the disciples? Where are the followers? Why are they hiding? Why, are they, why do they not have enough respect for the three years that they spent with Jesus, day and night, that they don't even show up at the tomb? None of them were willing to die for the man that they had left everything for. They were all part of the inner circle, the closest But when it came time to show their belief in who Jesus was, they were nowhere to be found. The interesting thing is the the Jewish leaders, the ones who had plotted to kill Jesus, the ones who actually carried out the death sentence and made sure that Jesus would die and would be crucified as a criminal, they had more faith in who Jesus was and what Jesus said than the actual disciples did. And that's hilarious to me. Time and time and time and time and time again as you read through the Gospels, you see Jesus foreshadow his own death, burial, and resurrection. He tells them time again, hey guys, look, there's coming a time that I'm not going to be with you. I'm going to be persecuted. I'm going to be tormented. I'm going to be killed. But don't worry, I'm going to rise again. You would think as many times as they heard that, when all of a sudden it actually happens, somebody in the group would have went, hey, Remember that time that Jesus said like, that he was going to be killed and then he was going to raise from the dead? Do you think that's now? No. No one in the group heard the message. But listen to this. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 62, the next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees, remember the people who accused Jesus of being a blasphemer, who thought he was nuts, came before Pilate and they said, Sir, we remember, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive that after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people that he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud would be worse than the first. And Pilate said to him, you have a guard of soldiers, go and secure the tomb as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So the the very people who wanted Jesus dead had more faith in the things that Jesus said than the disciples. They also had more faith in the followers of Jesus than the followers of Jesus did in themselves. They said, look, we we have to make sure that Number one, this guy doesn't actually rise from the dead, so post a guard. If he comes back to life, kill him again. Or, if the disciples try to come in the middle of the night and steal the body and say to everybody, look, he rose from the dead. But the funny thing is, the disciples don't even remember the story. 
But the chief priests, they heard Jesus say, I will rise again. And he said it enough times, and they heard it enough times that it stuck in them. And they said, we better make sure that this guy doesn't come up out of the ground. So they came up with a plan to post guards. They didn't understand that the the disciples had no intention of going anywhere near that tomb. And then Sunday comes. The two Marys go again to prepare and to do the final preparation of Jesus' body. None of the remaining disciples are bold enough to go with them. We see in Matthew chapter 28, verse 1, it says, Now after the Sabbath, which remember is on Saturday, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, which is Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Okay, now if you're wondering what that means, it means they fainted. Don't laugh at them. If you were sent there to guard that tomb and a guy appears like lightning with white clothing, I guarantee you I would probably faint too. So don't try to act all big and bad this morning or we will find out. We will ask an angel to appear and we'll see who's left standing. (laughs) So don't act too manly this morning. And the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. I love that, how angels always say that when they appear to a human. They're like, hey, don't be afraid. And it's like, speak for yourself, dude. Where did you come from? You know, we see earlier in the Gospels when the angel appears to Mary to tell her that she's going to have Jesus. She's sweeping the floor, minding her own business. Imagine that. You're in your kitchen. You're minding your own business, sweeping your floor. And all of a sudden, you turn around, and there's this dude in all white that's really big, and is an angel. And it's in there, and he's like, don't be afraid. And it's like, too late. I'm already afraid. So the angel says to them, don't be afraid. It's going to be okay. He said, I know you're here. You seek Jesus who was crucified. Verse number six says, he's not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Now, in the story, the angel now sends two women to go tell a group of men that Jesus has risen from the dead because the men were too afraid to go to the tomb. Now, I don't know about you, but imagine with yourself, there's a group of guys sitting there and they're afraid and they're hiding and they're being cowards. And two women walk in and they're like, you're never going to believe this. He rose from the dead. He's not there. What do you think they're going to say? Oh, you women, you're so emotional and just <laughs> always seeing things and hearing things. And, you know, who told you that he rose? There was an angel. Yeah, there was an angel. No. And listen, this is exactly what happens. It's exactly what happens. Mark. Chapter 16, verse number 9. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. And interesting, the first person that Jesus appears to after his resurrection is Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. They just threw that in there um, for your knowledge. 
She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two more of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. At this point in the story, it seems like the story's over. You know, he's appeared to, to at least three people as being alive, and no one believes the story. None of Jesus' followers, who remember, had heard time and time again, I will rise again. That's the whole plan. I'm going to come. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. And we see the Pharisees believe it. We see him appear to three people, and they're like, "You won't I saw Jesus, and no one believes the story. Does this sound like, like great work of fiction to you? No, it makes the disciples look like the biggest bunch of clowns that ever walked the earth. What kind of disciples are these? It's like Jesus had to be like, come on. It reminds me of this scene in a movie. And, and there's these knights. And it's this king and he wants them to guard his daughter. And so he goes, okay, you two wait here. Don't let anybody in. And don't let her out. And I'll be right back. And they're like, right. And so then the king walks and they follow him. And he's like, what are you doing? No, 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 no. You stay. And this goes on and on and on and on, back and forth, back and forth. How many times did Jesus tell them, I'm going to rise again, but yet they still didn't get it. It's like something from a comedy show. They just would not believe it. But then Jesus appears to all the disciples. And then it took Thomas. The Bible says that he actually had to touch the scars on his hands, to believe the story. <laughs> the disciples aren't the heroes of this story. They're the clowns. They thought they knew what the Messiah was going to look like, but the Messiah turned out to be something completely different than any of them ever imagined. What about this unbelievable story makes it so believable? And it's simple. The reason that we believe this crazy story is because of what happened in these men's lives after the resurrection of Jesus. After they see him and they walk with him and they talk with him, they go from men that are hiding out and want nothing to do for fear of their lives to all of a sudden, just a handful of days later, they're in the streets of Jerusalem and they're preaching the gospel and they're sharing with everyone that Jesus is alive, that he is the Messiah, and the only way to get to God is through him. That's a radical change in the lives of these men. What happened to make this profound change in their life? And it's simple. They witness with their own eyes the resurrected body of Jesus Christ in person. Not once, but multiple times to different people in different locations. And Jesus continued to teach and to minister to them after that. And for me, the biggest part of this story that makes it so believably true is we enter Jesus' family. Now, I don't know about your story, but my story, whenever, you know, you were put the word, and now the family enters the story, that's when it usually gets a little crazy, right? Oh, all your families are perfectly sane. Well, good for you. Congratulations. Um, for those of us who have goofy families, <clears throat> don't look so righteous, um, this is where the family enters the story. Now, Jesus, the Bible tells us, had brothers and sisters. 
half-brothers and sisters. Now, his brother James had nothing to do with him. And the Bible tells us that none of his siblings believed him. They all thought he was nuts. And they didn't want anything to do with him. They wanted him away from them. The Bible says this in John 7, 5. It says, for even his brothers did not believe in him. And then going to Mark chapter 6, verse 4. It says, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. His own brother didn't believe in him. Now, to us today, that might sound kind of crazy. Like, how could his own brothers not believe? But let's just stop for a minute and let's give the brothers some credit. How many of you in here this morning have a brother? Raise your hand. Or a sister? So you have a relationship with your sibling. Now let's say, you know, just for fun, that your sibling comes home to you one day and goes, Hey, I just want to, got some news. I tell you, it's just amazing. Did you know that I am actually the son of God? Exactly. Be like, have you gone mad? No, you're not the son of God. You're just, what? What? You're crazy. And that's exactly what his siblings thought. And I can tell you this. I have a pretty good relationship with my little brother. We're, we're pretty good friends. And I love him to death. But if my brother called me on the phone and told me that he was the son of God, I would ask him what was happening. What was he on? What was going down in his life? Uh, maybe he needed some counseling. Maybe he needed rehab. Um, I don't know. But I can tell you this. There's only one thing that could happen that might convince me that my brother was the son of God. Because I've met my dad. And he's not God. There's only one thing. If my brother were crucified on a cross, dead, put into a grave, and then appeared to me, alive, and said, I told you. I'd be like, I'm in. How did you do that? Okay, there must be something to the story. That's exactly what happens in the life of James, Jesus' brother. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, James appears on the, on the forefront. The Bible tells us in the book of Acts that he is, he's present on the day of Pentecost. It says all these were in one accord. They were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women. They always mention the women. Isn't that good of them? Yeah, give yourselves a hand, ladies. You're here this morning. The women are in the story. Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. All of a sudden, his brothers are there in the forefront when just a little bit earlier in the narrative, they want nothing to do with him. He's crazy. He's just berserk. And now all of a sudden, we see that they're there on the day of Pentecost, and they become influential people in the church. In fact, James becomes the early founder and the early leader of the church in Jerusalem. And the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter constantly come back to James for advice. And we see James's name continued out throughout the story of Acts in the early church. But every single one of Jesus' disciples, including his brother, James, met a horrible death because of their faith in who Jesus was. So all of a sudden, we see the men who didn't believe, who had nothing to do with Jesus. They were afraid. They were, they were hiding. They did not believe. The story was over. That all of a sudden, they're on the forefront. They're out in the streets. They're proclaiming, and they're even willing to give their lives for this cause. 
The reason is simple. They saw Jesus alive. And that's the whole reason that we believe this crazy story. Is because we see the fruit and the evidence of the resurrected body of Jesus Christ, knowing that he was the Son of God and that everything that he said that he was, that he really was. Because, not because somebody told us that he rose from the dead. No, no, no. Because we see the evidence in the lives of the people who changed. Peter denied Jesus and he, and he cursed out people and he ran and he hid. The rest of the disciples were hiding. They, were, they didn't want to be seen for fear of being killed, for fear of being persecuted the same way Jesus was. And then all of a sudden, just a few days later, boom, they're out in the forefront. They're proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. And they're taking on not only the Romans, but they took on the Greeks. And then they took on the very uh, leadership of the, the elite in Palestine, the Jewish leadership. They took them on. And suddenly, 2,000 years later, because of what the resurrected body of Jesus Christ did in the lives of these people, we sit here today gathered under the same banner to celebrate the same resurrection and to be witnesses of the same thing that Jesus has done in your life that he's done in my life. And that's the reason that we believe this crazy story is because the evidence has always been right in front of us. And this Easter, no matter where you are in your journey with God, the message is simple. The narrative is so easy to comprehend. And it's this, God loves you enough that he sent his son Jesus to die a terrible public death, to be raised from the grave so that we could be forgiven. And just like those men 2,000 years ago, our lives could be radically changed and be radically different than they were before. Because Jesus said, I've come to give you life and to give you life more abundantly. And that's the same plan that he has for each of us this morning. So no matter where we are this morning in our journey with God, the Easter message is the same. Jesus wants to transform your life. Whether this is the first time you've ever heard this or the 50 millionth time that you've heard this, there's still resurrection power that needs to happen in your life as we continue to grow and mature as disciples in, in what Jesus wants us to be. The resurrection gives us hope and confidence to know that he is alive. And this morning... We want to give you that opportunity too. If this is the first time you've ever heard this or maybe you've never said, you know what, I want to have this, this power in my life. We want to give you the opportunity to, to receive that in your life this morning. If you would, bow your heads and close your eyes with me as, as, as we prepare to, to wind down this morning. God, we're so thankful that you were willing to send your son to die, that we could have life and that we could have it more abundantly. God, that in spite of of our failure, to, to, in spite of our, our shortcomings, that you saw enough in each and every one of us. And your word says that you loved us enough, that you sent your son, that no one would die, but that all would have everlasting life. And God, this morning we surrender ourselves to you. And this morning, if you're here, if you've never, um, if you've never called on that name of Jesus before to be your Savior, to allow the same power and the same transformating power that existed 2,000 years ago in the lives of these men that's available for you this morning. It's simple. You just have to call on the name of Jesus. Confess that you're a sinner. 
and confess that he is Lord of your life. And if you do that, if you say that prayer this morning as we continue in, a, in an attitude of worship this morning, we'd love to hear from you uh, later and we can tell you how you can, how you can continue to grow in your relationship with Christ. But no matter where each of us are this morning, there's some areas, some facet of our life that we could use that resurrection power. So we pray this morning that you would release that, whatever it is to God this morning, that we would give him as much as he gave to us. And it's all that he had to give. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.